This is TechSnap, episode 421, for January 24th, 2020. Hello and welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. My name is Wes, and I'm joined by Jim. Hey, Wes, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Windows update? Windows vulnerabilities. Yeah, it's been a wild patch Tuesday this time around, and probably the showstopper was a flaw in the Windows cryptography subsystem, found by none other than the NSA. There's pretty much a critical vulnerability for everybody here. Uh, There's a crypto API spoofing vulnerability, uh, Windows Remote Desktop Gateway, and Remote Desktop Client vulnerability. Uh, These are mixed in with the 49 total vulnerabilities that got addressed in the most recent Patch Tuesday. Yeah, this is a bad one. So if you haven't already updated, go do that right now and then come back and finish the episode. Yeah, and you know, honestly, Wes, this is that same lesson. I'm just going to keep drumming into people's heads over and over and over again until I'm sure everybody's got it. You should be receiving the news after you're patched. I, I don't really sweat these things too much when I see them because I know I've got automated updates turned on. And uh, by the time the vulnerability goes public, I'm already patched against it. But now that you've had your semi-weekly scolding from sysadmin dad, let's talk about our actual vulnerabilities this time around. Uh, First up, we've got the crypto API spoofing vulnerability uh, 2020-0601. Basically, what this one boils down to is it throws a great big old monkey wrench into certificate validation. Uh, Somebody that is um, exploiting that vulnerability can bypass the trust store. They can deceive users into thinking that a piece of code has been signed by an entity which it has not been signed for. Also, they can just maliciously craft their own certificates for whatever host name they feel like. And any browser that's relying on Windows Crypto API won't issue a warning. They'll see the certificate as legitimate. So if you have not patched this vulnerability and you fire up your trusty browser and head over to Microsoft.com, should you get man in the middle and end up on a malware site that has a fake certificate claiming to be Microsoft.com, your browser might trust that implicitly, and everything looks good. You got green check marks, and you download more code. Yikes. Jim, the implications here are not great. How did this happen? Well, the underlying flaw is in Windows handling of elliptic curve cryptography. As you may know, there are a few standard curves, each with some specific parameters. The flaw at the heart of this vulnerability is that Microsoft would accept non-standard parameter values for G. And it turns out that with some fancy math and control over the value of G, you can take any public key and then generate a private key that will match, at least when using your custom value of G. And thus was born Curveball, or my preferred name, Let's Decrypt. As we mentioned earlier, this vulnerability was first reported by the NSA, and that's a bit unusual. The NSA has been known for keeping vulnerabilities secret, notably Eternal Blue, and then using them for their own devices, and not reported it to the upstream vendor who could actually provide a patch. Now, with an N of 1, it's certainly hard to say if this is going to be a trend, but I for one hope we see more of this behavior from the NSA. Next up, let's talk about remote desktop. There are three total vulnerabilities, two of them in the remote desktop gateway service, and one of them in the remote desktop client itself. 
And there's a lot of technical details that I'm just going to gloss over for right now and get down to what you care about as a sysadmin or infosec person. The impact of the remote desktop gateway vulnerabilities is that an attacker who touches an exposed gateway can cause code to execute on your gateway prior to authentication. So the attacker doesn't need to know anything about any certificates that you have or any user passwords or anything. If your gateway is someplace where it can be touched and you haven't patched it, it can be owned. Now, the vulnerability, it's actually a separate vulnerability. The first two are 2020-0609 and 0610. The third vulnerability is in the remote desktop client itself. And effectively, it's just the inverse of what we just talked about with the gateway. Uh, If you touch a malicious gateway with your Windows remote desktop client and it's unpatched, the gateway can cause remote code execution on your computer. Again, you don't need to successfully authenticate. Just touching the gateway is enough to infect your client. Say you're targeted by a man in the middle attack or just happen to type a host name incorrectly. You could get owned. Or it could be a watering hole attack. Maybe you're connecting to a you know perfectly legitimate gateway that you connect to all the time, but that gateway's been compromised. Now you touch it, you can get compromised too. Seems like once again, RDP can just be a dangerous idea, at least when it's exposed. We, we've said this before, we're going to say it again. Exposing RDP to the internet at large is just not safe. You need to have that thing behind a VPN. RDP, VPNs. This brings us to our next topic today, which is firewalls. Jim, you've been playing with OpenSense, right? Yeah, I did my first OpenSense installation this weekend, and uh, I ended up liking it a lot. Well, that's exciting, Jim. It's not every day you welcome a new firewall into the family. Am I right in thinking that OpenSense is a fork of the venerable PFSense? Correct. In much the same way that, for example, uh, the ZigmaNAS uh, network attached storage distribution is a fork of FreeNAS. And much like I ended up preferring ZigmaNAS strongly to FreeNAS, I prefer OpenSense to PFSense as well. There are a lot of similarities. You know, they're both BSD-based, and the installation process seems pretty familiar. If you've ever done a PFSense install, when you do your first OpenSense install, uh, you still have a very limited, uh, you know, text-based kind of a menu on the actual console of the router itself when you first install it. And you do your real installation in a GUI in a web browser. You know, I'm, I'm not super deep in the OpenSense GUI yet, but it's a lot more cleanly laid out than PFSense. And although I have been, you know, on and off adminning, uh, you know, PFSense routers for about a year now, Honestly, after one weekend, I feel more familiar with OpenSense than I do with the PFSense that I have almost a year under my belt with. Hey, that's a good property, especially for a tool whose main use case is having a nice, friendly GUI to use. And firewalls tend to be some of those appliances you might not see every day, so it's nice to have that easy to come back to when you need to adjust a setting six months down the road. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm responsible for uh, about 20 PFSense routers at this point. Um, so, you know, when I, when I say that I've been using PFSense for about a year, it's, it's on about 20 total routers, but like you said, you don't really touch a router day in, day out. And, uh, it, it leaves me generally sort of familiar with it, but it's still a real handicap when you feel like that interface isn't intuitive and you feel like you're fighting it every time you use it. And that's very much been the way I felt about PFSense. Um, OpenSense, the interface is definitely not perfect. Um, it's not as intuitive as 
uh, you know, say the uh, the consumer interface on like a Netgear Nighthawk router or, uh, you know, something along those lines. It's not that intuitive, but it's a lot closer than PFSense is. One thing that's great about PFSense and OpenSense is you can use them in all kinds of different scenarios. Jim, I'm curious, what were you exploring? The main use case for PFSense for me has always been it's it's a reasonably supportable way to get x86 routing into small businesses. Uh, you know, it's it's pretty quick to hit a cutoff point where it's difficult to keep up with ARM hardware with the needs of a network that's got a lot of concurrently active users on it. And NetGate, you know, the, the company behind PFSense, they offer uh, NetGate appliances with PFSense pre-installed. And I've inherited a couple of those, but I've always personally found them kind of overpriced. Um, you'll spend nearly $500 for a little itty-bitty ARM-based router with only two ports on it. And when you look at the live hardware monitoring in the interface, you see the CPU, you know, it, it's it's spiking up to 50, 60, 70% utilization all the time, even when there's not really a whole lot going on in the network with that little ARM-based CPU. So I greatly prefer just getting a generic x86 box and installing the distribution on it. And that's that's true whether it's PFSense or OpenSense. Now, you can get tons of these things from Amazon or you know Newegg or what have you, or you can build your own completely from scratch. But I found there's a Chinese vendor called Chotum, and it's spelled Q-O-T-O-M. I, I like their builds. They've got ruggedized, fanless chassis with a nice, deep, you know, metal heat sinks on the top, and you can get them in four or eight port versions with Celerons or, uh, you know, laptop i3s, i5s, or i7s for a really good price. I ended up spending less than $300 for an i5 with eight gigs of RAM and a 16 gig solid state drive, as opposed to the nearly 500 for the NetGate with the ARM CPU. Yeah, that sounds like a much better deal, and I'll admit, I'm interested. While I normally choose Linux for my firewall needs, OpenSense seems like it makes, forgive me, a lot of sense, at least for appliance-like applications. Is there anything else I need to know about OpenSense? Yeah, Wes, you know, I was kind of at the same point that uh, newbie to consumer router firmware flashing might be, trying to choose between OpenWRT and DDWRT. You know they both serve the same purpose, but there's all kinds of subtle differences between them, and you probably have to go read a forum thread somewhere to figure out which one you should actually be using. Exactly. So I knew they were both there, and I knew I was probably going to have a distinct preference for one or the other, but I really wasn't sure yet which one. I saw a lot of, you know, kind of generic user posts on forums saying that the user interface was a lot better on OpenSense than it was on PFSense, and that sounded appealing. But I still wasn't really sure about, you know, code quality or what would the support be like, or how long had they been around. So I did a little bit deeper digging. And to my surprise, I, uh, I, I found some drama. OpenSense originally forked from PFSense back in 2014. Uh, the developers behind OpenSense had been sponsors of the PFSense project. They'd been, you know, financial supporters. And they didn't like the direction that the development was going. They didn't feel that the code was up to their quality standards. And they wanted to recreate the project in their own words and more of the spirit of the original mono wall distro that PFSense had been forked from. This was fine and dandy. And for the next couple of three years, they did their thing. They made regular OpenSense releases. And you just had two distributions to pick from. You had OpenSense, you had PFSense. 
But then NetGate, the company behind PFSense, registered the domain OpenSense.com and put a really nasty, uh, I, I hesitate to call it a parody website, it was really an attack website uh, about OpenSense there. They used the OpenSense name, uh, they used a video of the movie Downfall, uh, you know, with an actor portraying Hitler ranting in his bunker and uh, captioned it, deep in the open sense development bunker. Well, I don't recommend it. It is archived over at the Wayback Machine if you're curious, and there's no way around it. It's pretty hostile. I mean, we could we could go on for more time than we have in the show about how nasty this site was. And when the open sense folks uh, you know, sent off a letter to WIPO to complain about it and uh, you know, find out who hosted it, they were expecting it would just be some random PF Sense fan. But when the email come back from WIPO to tell them who was behind the domains by proxy privacy registration, it turns out that it was not some distraught PFSense fan. It was Jamie Thompson, Rubicon Communications, doing business as NetGate. That is unfortunate. Yeah, wow. I, I mean, it's hard to really react adequately to this because in my sysadmin circles, you know, PFSense is seen as the super professional, high-performance, well-supported, very commercial, very grown-up, you know, way to go with your small business routers, and... That's not professional behavior. <laughs> that, that's not at all what this feels like. <laughs> well, anyway, Wes, long story short, you know, it's, that's a lot of drama and dirty laundry, and it's kind of ugly, but it's certainly made me feel like I'm making the right choice and going with OpenSense rather than PFSense. Um, besides the drama and PFSense being very much on the wrong side of that drama, when you dig into docs.opensense.org, they have a coding guidelines, basics, and future page that goes into some detail about coding standards, not just, you know, we're DeCiso, the makers of OpenSense.org, and we say you have to write high-quality code, no, they're talking about model view controller standards and PHP code, uh, PSR1 and PSR2 coding standards set down by the PHP Framework Interoperability Group. For Python, the Python enhancement proposals apply. They have architecture and component documentation. Uh, this is a very grown-up design document. It certainly seems like they've got a great focus on a maintainable, healthy, enjoyable open source project. And I love seeing that. And I can tell you it absolutely was very easy to install. Uh, you download the installer and burn it to a USB drive. It boots up in a, uh, you can actually test drive it live and usable directly off of the USB with no installation. Or, of course, you can just do an install direct to your system's drive, which I did. And uh, it was really easy. The interface is much cleaner than PFSense's. I felt more comfortable with it after a few hours on a Sunday working with it than I had in a year of intermittent experience with PFSense. And uh, the performance has been great as well. Now, to be fair, I didn't compare directly the performance of PFSense versus OpenSense. So that's not necessarily what we're talking about right now. However, I can tell you I went from a uh, 2 gigahertz CPU ARM-based Netgear Nighthawk router, which was bottlenecking on this particular client's 500 megabit connection, you know, at about 280 megabits or so, um, to the new OpenSense router, which ran all the way up a little bit beyond 500 megabits. Uh, perfect performance, never broke sweat. And usually that's the most important test of all. Does it actually work for your use case? 
Exactly. I won't lie to you. I did find one hitch in getting, you know, one of the more advanced parts of the system working for me. I don't usually run VPN servers directly on the router. I tend to prefer to run them in VMs on a host on the LAN side of the firewall and just do static routing through that host as an additional gateway. Now, that's really easy with consumer routers like, uh, you know, Netgear or Asus or what have you. Uh, It's considerably more difficult with PFSense. It's kind of a nightmare, honestly. And it appeared to be simpler on OpenSense at first, but I did run into a hitch that took me a while to figure out. The first thing you have to do is you have to define an additional gateway and point that to your machine or VM on the LAN side. Once you've done that, you can set up a static route for your tunnel and route it through that gateway on the LAN side. And at this point, at first, you think everything works because you can ping machines on the LAN from arbitrary machines connected to the VPN and vice versa. But what happens then, and this is actually, this kind of ties into why we ended up talking about this, because we were talking about the RDP vulnerabilities, and it reminded me about this weekend appearing to have all my static routing in the VPN set up, but I couldn't get remote desktop to work. Now, this had nothing to do with the RDP vulnerability. The actual problem was that pings will work when you've done what I just described, you know, set up a a gateway on your LAN and uh, set up a static route through it, but only pings work. Uh, Actual services won't until you find another setting buried a little obscurely in OpenSense's interface. Now, trying to figure this out was driving me absolutely nuts. The one thing that kept me a little bit more sane than I otherwise might have been is I discovered OpenSense has a really nice live firewall view. Um, You can see firewalls being applied in real time to traffic as it goes through the network, which makes it a lot easier to see what's happening. So, you know, what I had discovered by this point is it wasn't just RDP. Absolutely nothing but ICMP would work. Everything was getting blocked. You can go into the log files and try to scroll through them and look for, you know, the individual lines that apply. And I did that, and I saw that, bizarrely, the default deny rule was blocking the machines on the LAN from replying to the machines on the VPN. But it made it a lot easier once I found the live view because now I could just go to my machine on the other end of the VPN and I can just run nmap against the RDP host, which would you know just reliably put thousands of connection attempts across the network and just scroll up nothing but the block rules that I was really concerned about in this live view. So I can see this happening in real time. Now, that didn't actually tell me what the problem was. But I finally did figure out what it was. You have to go into the firewall settings and settings under there and advanced. There's a a checkbox labeled static route filtering. If you tick that, it says bypass firewall rules for traffic on the same interface. This option only applies if you define one or more static routes. If it's enabled, traffic that enters and leaves to the same interface won't be checked by the firewall. This was, in fact, the setting that I needed. And when I ticked that, now all of my services worked. And I could view that not only by the fact that RDP would now connect, but again, I could just run Nmap from my remote host because what I'd actually done is rather than continuing to bother, uh, you know, this employee at a client who was actually at home trying to grill some ribs and I'm bugging him trying to get him to connect to the server. Yeah, I actually just spun up a little Linux machine uh, on DigitalOcean, you know, in a couple of minutes and, uh, you know, set up my OpenVPN creds on that, connected in, and now I'm just running Nmap from that VM and I can just see live what's going on with it. I don't even have to wait for the Nmap to complete itself. I can just see the firewall rules go slamming by. And if they're green, I'm good. If they're red, haven't fixed the problem yet. 
That sounds like quite a good test case. I mean, there's always going to be some weird configuration issue when you're setting up a new firewall, but what's nice to know is that OpenSense has good debugging tooling built right in to help you resolve it. And it was just, uh, you know, again, I have to say, it was a lot easier to navigate than PFSense. Uh, I have done a pretty significant amount of fighting with bizarre firewall rules, particularly, you know, default denies that don't seem like they should really be kicking in, and yet they are on PFSense. And it felt a lot harder to find where I was going and to see what was going on. I felt a lot more lost. Well, I'm glad you've at least got another option. We'll have to check back in a couple months down the road and see how OpenSense performs. Well, Wes, this whole episode, one way or another, has ended up being about remote control. So let's talk about some really, really remote communication. You know, like communicating with astronauts in space? I think that qualifies, Jim. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a particular sound that uh, most of us know from the iconic Apollo missions, the communications between the astronauts and mission control. There's a certain kind of a beep that you hear every once in a while. And most of us probably haven't really thought too much about it, but you'll recognize it both in the original Apollo communications and also where it gets sampled sometimes from music. Like uh, one of my own favorites from the 90s, uh, Crystal Method's High Roller. Yeah, that's certainly a classic, at least to some. But besides adding a space-like atmosphere to just about anything you play them on top of, those tones also have an important purpose. They also have a name. The beeps are called Quindar tones, and uh, I actually had to look that one up again to make sure because I thought it sounded too much like Thundar the Barbarian and uh, thought they might come with their trusty friend Ookla the Mock, but no, those are the beeps from the NASA transmissions. There are actually two different Quindar tones. Uh, They're both 250 milliseconds long, so you get a slightly higher pitch tone on the intro and a slightly lower pitch tone when a transmission is done. Now, since usually the Capcom would be in a busy, noisy control room, and you don't want those noises distracting the astronauts on their space mission, NASA implemented a push-to-talk system. Now, normally, something like push-to-talk is not a big deal to implement, but the space program had some very unique requirements. In order to keep in near-constant communication with the spacecraft, NASA had tracking stations all over the world. And the audio from Capcom, which was going to be sent into space, was transmitted to those stations via dedicated telephone lines. The problem? These lines were just for voice. If NASA wanted to send control signals, like transmit on and off, they'd have to run an entirely separate set of wires, which would be expensive. So they came up with an ingenious solution. Use the same lines for both. No out-of-band communication and control, Wes. Do not like. Yeah, it's a hack, all right. And you can tell because those telephone lines, well, they're optimized for the human voice. And that means the control tones had to fit in the normal range of human speech. Thus, the Quindar tones were born. So what NASA absolutely did not need was their own personal version of Cap'n Crunch. Yeah, that's for sure. Although, Jim, I think you better explain that reference, because you're not talking about cereal. There's a long history of hacking into in-band communication and control systems. Uh, for those of you who didn't catch the Cat and Crunch reference, there was a gentleman by the name of John Draper who used to use a toy whistle from Cat and Crunch cereal 
If he blew it just right, he could generate a tone at precisely 2600 hertz, which was a command tone for AT&T, actually Mob Bell at the time, voice telephone systems. And uh, he could make free long-distance calls that way. And it even sounds almost like those Quindar tones. Two, one, two, five. 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 One, two, one, two. And that signal means it's the end of this episode of TechSnap. But don't worry, you can find more over at techsnap.systems. We've got the full back catalog, show notes for each and every episode, and easy ways to get in touch. If you'd like more Jim, well, you can find him writing over at Ars Technica. Go check out his amazing guide to testing Wi-Fi gear. Jim, I think it's safe to say you've written the book on it now. (laughs) Pretty much. And you're also on Twitter. At JRSSNet. I'm there too. I'm at Wes Payne. The whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thank you so much for joining us. See you in a couple weeks, everybody. <laughs>